Welcome to the Yet Worth podcast. I'm your host, Emma, here with my co-host, Max. Hey, everyone. And today we're continuing our coverage of our ebook, Planting the Seed, 20 Ways to Preserve Your Yet Worth, which can be found at yetworth.com slash ebook. And we're covering part three, which is all about employee benefits. So as we learned in our last episode on government benefits, W-2 earners may have access to California State DI benefits for up to over 6,000 a month um, and as long as one year. But employees may have an even more robust benefits package through their employer that can supplement their disability income, such as a retirement, pension, workers' comp, worksite insurance, group LTD, and even executive income, which we call GSI, Guarantee Standard Issue. So our first topic we'll cover is pensions or retirement pensions. Most government workers don't have access to SSDI or state DI, so they have special programs that provide benefits upon retirement or total disability, which is usually considered an early retirement. There are a few caveats here, and one is that the program may not offer partial or residual benefits, um, which is kind of a big one. So the definition is usually a total, total disability. And there's typically a vesting period, which can be sometimes as long as 10 years of full employment before full benefits may be accessed. Is there anything else you'd like to add here about pensions, retirement pensions? Definitely. So this is always tricky because government employees, the way they're underwritten is um, underwriters at an individual DI carrier is going to be looking at the total benefits that are on the table for somebody who's out on a total disability claim. So we oftentimes are not going to be able to do very much if they're covered up to, let's say, 80% of their pre-disability employment um, with the uh, pension plan that they've got. So in other words, they go out on total disability, they can never work again. That might be the terms for the pension uh, to pay out based on disability. And in that case, they would get 80% of their salary or whatever the benefit allocation was. So 80% of their salary could be with other incentive compensation as well. But generally, 80% of their uh, of their last year of income with that government agency. So that's where we're really we got our hands tied in the individual space. There's nothing to supplement there because obviously that person's fully covered. However, in the event that they have not fully vested and they're getting significantly less, then we're looking at a scenario that's going to uh, play out where they don't get nearly as much as what they thought they had. So typically what we like to do is determine how they're vested and then how long they've been vested and how much of their income is being covered, if there's a way to figure that out through a benefits table, and then supplement accordingly, at least during that period of time where they're not fully vested. And then once they get to that 60% threshold, we're really not going to be able to contribute much to a supplemental plan. But just acknowledge that there is a gap there with these pensions. It takes a while to vest. Yeah, those are kind of the, the main points here. So we'll move on to workers' comp. Um, workers' comp is required coverage for employers to have on all their W-2 employees. 
And of course, this coverage only kicks in if someone is hurt on the job. So like an injury usually. And as we already know, the likelihood of long-term disability due to an injury is extremely low compared to illness, 5% compared to 95%. Anything else you'd like to add about workers' comp? I think you covered it pretty well. I mean, it, it's clear that it is, workers' comp plan is not round-the-clock coverage if there's any illness, especially. Uh, super rare to get an illness from an on-the-job uh, type of workers' comp claim. So, I mean, that's the vast majority of claims, as you pointed out. So there's really no substantial comprehensive coverage here. But, um, you know, that's going to be a big problem, a big gap. So we need to make sure that we're addressing it with comprehensive coverage. Oh, and the other thing to note, business owners typically take themselves out of the plan because why would they pay premium for a coverage that they're never going to claim on and then have to pay a higher premium for themselves later on? So it's not, it makes no sense for business owners to cover themselves with workers' comp, especially if they have a disability insurance plan that can help them you know, recoup their income if they're injured on the job, injured anywhere, really, or get diagnosed with a serious illness that will require some rehabilitation. So that's that's what we're talking about here. Comprehensive coverage versus something that's extremely narrowly defined when you're injured on the job primarily. Yeah, it's it's not really, uh, it's not a substitute. Like a lot of these uh, topics we're covering, it's not a substitute for disability insurance, but it's something that we definitely have to mention because it's, it's required for W-2 employees. So moving on to worksite DI. I'm going to have you kind of go over worksite DI because I'm not as familiar. It's more like a menu of predetermined benefit amounts based on a variety of predetermined conditions. So it's not comprehensive. It's not really a holistic approach. Yeah, the fact that it's kind of piecemeal is is really typical of a worksite plan. But also on the back end, it, they're going to be really cheap. So usually people see a lot of value with these plans, but you really got to chalk up what the actual benefit calculation is for that quote unquote value. Because while you might be paying a $19 a month premium for your disability plan, it's going to come with a lot of caveats. And the one that I see the most often is the fact that it's a short term program. It's not going to pay beyond maybe three months, even six um, so you're not going to, we don't see these a lot in California in general because, you know, W-2 employees are covered by um, state DI. But in those instances where, you know, you have some type of benefit that, um, you know, you can elect to purchase, that's going to be really cheap. There's always going to be some sort of strings attached and, and it comes in the definition. It comes in the actual total benefit calculation. Uh, in this case, the duration in the example that I drew up just now. Um, but it could also just be a benefit cap in general. Maybe it's 2000 a month, 5000 a month, something like that. And you might need way more than that. So uh, lots of different caveats that come along with that. And then, of course, you've got your critical illness plans and things like that. That'll show up on these on these um, this menu of benefits as well on the work site. And those are great for what they are. And we'll dive into that a little bit more later. But it is not disability insurance. And, and we can, again, address that in a later episode. Right, exactly. CI is great, but it's not um, income replacement in terms of disability insurance. Um, and one last thing about uh, worksite DI is that, like you mentioned, it's kind of like covering those critical illnesses like stroke, heart attack, cancer, but actually the most common causes of disability are musculoskeletal disorders that are typically not covered in these plans. Let's move on to group long-term disability insurance. Group LTD is a great benefit that employers can offer to their employees. 
It's an affordable tool to attract and retain talent since the premiums are deductible to the employer. The benefits are typically comprehensive, including residual and partial definitions of disability. So that's great, right? The main issues with group LTD from an employee standpoint is that it's not portable. If they leave their job, they leave their group LTD. And benefits are taxable, so their take-home benefit can be as low as 50 to 60% of their pre-disability take-home pay. So there's a couple of big issues here. And then do you wanna discuss the disability definitions and how those can be problematic here? Yeah, typically you're getting faced with these receding definitions, these disappearing definitions that are really going to cause problems for people who are, you know, kind of on the cusp of claim, if you will. So if you're looking at it from, you know, a, an employer standpoint, they want to supply a group disability program. So naturally, they're going to ask a broker to provide some options. They're almost always going to gravitate to the one with the lowest cost. Um, unless they know what they're looking for. And, and that's the problem with these plans is that they don't know what the what the unknowns are, right? There's known unknowns and then there's unknown unknowns and they just don't have a grasp of how to really shop for this stuff. And so typically what ends up happening is you gravitate towards these cheap plans that have a two-year ONOC period, which sounds great because you see that ONOC coverage for two years, um, but, you know, a lot of people just miss the two-year part, which means what happens after two years? If you have this coverage that's going to, you know, quote-unquote, pay to Social Security normal retirement age, age 67 for most workers these days, then how, how does that square with a two-year ONOC provision? Well, what happens after two years, in that 25th month of claim, you have to prove that you're unable to work in any occupation commensurate with your training and education and experience. So that can, you know, it's been sort of tested in ways where I've heard people say, if you can't be a greeter at Walmart, then uh, then that would put you out as in any occupation claim. But if you can be a greeter at Walmart, then you're not going to be eligible for a claim beyond two years. Um, of course, that is a little bit of a hype of hyperbole. Um, but you can imagine for a surgeon or somebody who has a little bit more of a technical profession, being able to go out on claim uh, because you can't do your own occupation or your regular occupation for a period of time is huge. So we want to make sure that people are covered with the best definitions for their appropriate scenario and that it's not just this catastrophic plan. That's really how we ought to refer to these going forward is, you know, in any occupation is really a catastrophic definition. You have to be unable to work in any scenario. And that's really tough for people to understand when they've been kind of, you know, typically people are dependent on their income. So if you're on disability, you become dependent on that disability income. And then 24 months later, without any really acknowledgement up to that point that your definition changes, you're going to find yourself in a really tricky situation because suddenly the rug's pulled from under you. And, and that's what people are setting up when they when they purchase these group LTD plans for their employees. Uh, and they don't always realize that. In fact, most don't in my experience. It's it's a great thing that an employer can offer, but like you said, it's usually not good enough for that individual. But we're kind of layering on top of that. Let's talk about executive disability insurance or GSI guarantee standard issue. It's a great benefit to offer employees with big roles in the business and high incomes. So these plans offer coverage on top of the group LTD benefit, which typically maxes out 
far lower than the monthly benefit that a high income earner needs to support their livelihoods. So while group LTD pays around 60% of income usually, GSI can supplement up to 75%. And that 15% is really important. And plus these plans are individual, which means they're portable and they have stronger definitions than a regular group LTD plan. Can you talk a little bit about those stronger definitions and when executive DI would be appropriate? Absolutely. So when we're talking about GSI or executive disability, uh, we're almost always talking about it in a way that it's supplementing an existing group LTD plan. So we talked about some of the, the obstacles, the constraints, the deficiencies of a group LTD plan in, in just a few minutes ago. And among those, we're talking about a 60% or 66% cap typically. So that what we're referring to there is the re replacement percentage of somebody's base salary. And so that's key to understand is typically we're talking about a base wage, a base salary. It's not incentive comp. That's not distribution income typically. Um, it's a base wage. So if somebody is making, let's say, $120,000 a year, and they have this 66% uh, income replacement, but it's not factoring in the extra 50 of distribution or the additional 100,000 of uh, sales or incentive comp, then, or even RSUs, that's a huge one that we're seeing in the tech space now, obviously is, you know, everybody's issued restricted stock units that essentially they turn into compensation immediately. And so if you're using that as part of your regular livelihood or even your retirement savings, maybe you're living off of your base wage, but all of your savings are coming from these other sources, guess what? Your group LTD is not going to help you replace any of that. So that's where we really like to underscore the value of a GSI plan is for these executive level employees typically um, who have really important roles at their, their companies. Um, you know, their talent is hard to recruit. It's hard to retain. This is a huge retention tool for people. And yes, the plans are portable. They would have to carry the premiums with them if they ever left and wanted to keep this plan intact. But that's great for people who are not insurable after a certain period of time, too. So say you work with a company for 10 years, it's re you're ready to go do a startup, but maybe the benefits is holding you back because you know you're not going to be able to get anything in the open market. Well, you can you can take this plan with you. So that portability is absolutely huge just from a planning perspective. If you're a financial advisor or somebody like that, understand that you know having a GSI plan in, in place is, is big for the overall foundational insurance for your client. Um, but that group LTD, again, it's only going to cap to a certain point too. So the 66% income replacement might be great for somebody who's making under 100,000 base wage and they don't have any other incentive comp or whatever. That's great. But it's usually going to be capped at about 10,000 a month or 15,000 a month. In some cases, you see it getting stretched to 20,000 for really big groups where carriers are, are more accepting of this because that's all guaranteed issue stuff, right? So there's no medical underwriting or anything. Um, and so if you're doing a plan where you've, you know, you've got somebody who's making 500,000 plus or even 250,000 plus, and they've got this 66% base wage up to $10,000 a month taxable, fully taxable, um, you're looking at really a take-home pay of somewhere in the realm of, let's see, if 10,000 minus taxes, you know, you're going to pay 30% for a California-based company. You know, you're walking home with 7,000 a month, and that's typically not going to work for somebody who's 
been accustomed to making over 20,000 a month pre-tax. So we want to make sure that there's, uh, you know, something beyond that 10,000 that people can tap into to have the same income replacement strategy for higher talent, you know, these, these higher income earners. And I think that's where we sort of get lost in translation. We feel like we're adding another benefit just for the high income earners. When really we're talking about more of an egalitarian system that's going to pay an equal benefit, equal replacement percentage for everybody at the company. Some people might think like, oh, well, 10,000 should be enough for everybody. Well, it's not. I mean, realistically, it's not. So we want to make sure that these people are cared for. Oftentimes they're the breadwinners and, you know, maybe their husband's at home with the kids or what have you. And so they need the extra income to manage their livelihoods, manage their retirement goals and everything like that. Everything they were on track for before a shoddy lackluster plan uh, kind of derailed everything. So that's what we want to account for is, is making sure that everybody has the same 66%. Um, we, like, like you mentioned, they can go up to 75. So even if you have a plan that's 60% to 10,000, let's say you can get them 75 up to 15,000, something like that. And this is all contingent upon how many lives are in the group as well. So if you're looking at a group of, of 10, we're probably not going to get huge offers to 10,000 a month or 15,000 a month, certainly maybe 10,000. But, um, but with the GSI plan that has upwards of 25 people, you can, you can start looking at these bigger benefit types, especially if they're in that more white collar space, executive only uh, type of realm. So that's really kind of the skinny on GSI and super important way overlooked benefit that a lot of people are just looking for that group LTD check and, and uh, checking that box without really understanding that they're leaving people with the higher incomes in a lurch in a true disability situation. That's our lowdown on employee benefits when it comes to disability insurance. In the end, an individual plan is usually the most comprehensive coverage, whether that's regular disability insurance, individual DI, or executive DI on top for hiring employees. But we're going to go into more detail on individual coverage in our next episode. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.